from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Travis Williams. Travis, for many of his younger years, devoted his life to his music, but eventually had to abandon it to support a budding family. Later in life, Travis was inspired to compile a book on the subject of happiness, which he makes available for free from his website, happyspirit.info. I started the interview by asking Travis where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Boy, that's a, that's a challenging question for me to answer because we moved a lot. I spent most of my life in California. My teenage years, I was here and part of my early childhood and most of my adult life. So primarily I'm from California, being born in San Francisco and living at a couple different points in the Santa Cruz area, which is also uh, central California, and then going to college and settling down in uh, Southern California. What was family life like growing up? That was also a bit unusual. I have a blended family, so I had three older half-sisters that would live with us from time to time, sometimes all together or sometimes one at a time. I also had an older half-brother who lived in El Salvador, so uh, he was not with us. But uh, uh, it was interesting because sometimes I'd be an only child, in a sense, and other times I'd have uh, older sisters to take care of me and and, uh, take me around. I had two working parents, so I pretty much spent a lot of time at home alone, which probably had its its pros and cons, looking back. Uh, And we, we also moved quite a bit, so... It wasn't really until I got into junior high that I started to have some long-lasting friendships. What were your interests growing up? Uh, you know, I had, had interest in uh, science, particularly from seeing the movie Close Encounters of a Third Kind. I thought that was just fascinating that there could be other life forms out there and maybe we could you know, make some contact with them. And I had... Uh, aspired to uh, go into that line of work, but I was around maybe 12 years old when I was thinking along those lines, and my parents found a school for me that I was excited about. It was a private school. The background behind that is somebody had told me, somebody a little bit older than me, that high school could be somewhat violent, and so I started thinking, oh, I don't want to go to high school, you know, to a public high school. I told my parents about it, and they they found a private school that I, I... was accepted into. The principal of this school, when he asked me what I was interested in, I told him I I wanted to study something having to do with intergalactic communication. And he quickly burst my bubble and said, well, you you can't really send sound through space, so you're going to have to think of something else. And uh, I didn't know enough to convince him that that there actually was some science there I could study. And so he, uh, having burst my bubble, I I had... uh, had an interest for a period in psychology, 
but then ended up studying uh, music. So when I was able to actually start at a community college, which I was able to do at a fairly young age, my main focus was music and English. I was at that point a budding uh, songwriter at a very young age. At what age, Travis, did you start writing songs? <laughs> well, I actually uh, took my first college class when I was 12. It was a psychology class and decided that was a little bit too much for me. By the time I was 13, I was able to start taking a full course in college, the local community college. So uh, I was taking a, a full load that consisted primarily of, of music and uh, English courses. At what age? 13. Why had you started community college so early? Well, this private school that I went to was sort of a, an advanced school. Because I had done well in school up to that point, I was able to skip a grade and take some advanced classes. I was studying Latin and algebra and things like that. It was at an accelerated pace. When I finished junior high, uh, there was a program at one of the local public high schools where you could take your high school classes and your community college classes at the same time. So my first semester in high school, I took two community college classes. In fact, I was getting A's in the community college, and I was getting C's, D's, <laughs> and A's at the high school. So I was actually doing better in my college classes. So in my second semester, I was able to switch and take, I believe it was five classes at the community college and just one back at the high school. And I did that for the sophomore year as well. And uh, was then able to take what's called the California High School Proficiency Exam. So that allowed me to actually have a high school proficiency at the age of 14 and started applying for colleges and started at the California Institute of the Arts at the age of 15 and studied music composition for four years and graduated when I was 18. Even though science was sort of your interest, was music always in the picture as well? Before you went to the private school, was music the always there? It started around, around that time, also sparked by a movie, uh, a movie called The Kids Are All Right, featuring The Who, that uh, I went to see with some friends, and that introduced me to the, the power that the music had. I didn't initially think I wanted to uh, make a career of music, I guess looking back, it was a it was a difficult period in those couple of years before I started California Institute of the Arts. So going through that, I think I was just dealing with a lot of emotional questions, and that attracted me towards a creative outlet. Now, what was it like going to community college and being so young compared to the rest of the student body, and the same also with college? Well... Fortunately, in a sense, I was tall for my age and uh, looked older than I was. So people probably thought I was more towards my late teens, even though I was in my early teens. Uh, you know, it really never came up. People, It was like a don't ask, don't tell sort of thing. I, I didn't tell them how young I was. They didn't ask, and I just got by. So what did you do after college? At the age of 18... Um, I was invited to perform as part of a, a musical group. This was a group of Baha'i youth who had formed a band, 
and had some success, and I was invited to, to join them. We were going to spend a summer touring on the East Coast, and basically uh, it wasn't for-profit. This was just something to uh, write and perform music that addressed different spiritual and social themes. So it was more of a service project that we were doing. That was going to start the summer after I graduated, so I was able to basically leave home and and take off and spend a summer doing that, and it was a, a fabulous experience. Now, you grew up as a Baha'i? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my parents were both Baha'is before I was born. And what was it like growing up as a Baha'i? It, for me, it was a wonderful experience. I think one of the great things about it was I was given a, a moral framework. To me, I never considered doing drugs or trying alcohol or even smoking or any of those things that the kids are often confronted with. In fact, I mentioned that I grew up in Santa Cruz primarily, which is known for a hippie culture. So a lot of my friends, when I was in high school, smoked marijuana. They all knew that I didn't, and they all respected me for that, never pressured me. So I was very thankful that I had that protection instilled in me from, from day one. I would say also growing up as a Baha'i gave me an appreciation for different cultures because my, my family would always be having people over from various backgrounds, various economic classes, people that spoke different languages. And so I was exposed to really sort of a little microcosm of the world in our own living room as, as we would have various people over. And it was wonderful to, to see how people can get along and uh, how much we have in common more so than, than our differences. So I'm uh, very thankful for that aspect of, of growing up in a Baha'i household. What did you do after you did that little tour with that uh, musical group? Well, you know, there was an older Baha'i. He was probably in his late 50s, early 60s at the time, who was also a musician and also uh, part of this overall project, even though he wasn't part of our particular music group. So we spent a, a, a good deal of time getting to know him. His name is Wilford Johnson. And he was from a little town called Black Mountain, North Carolina. Wilford was a wonderful performer, wonderful just human being. And getting to know him, in a sense, he was, he was, was a role model for me, somebody I, I, I wanted to be able to do with my music and with my life what he was doing because he was... Uh, he was basically retired at that point and just gave his time uh, going around performing songs he'd written about spiritual topics, social topics. And I thought, what a wonderful you know, thing he does. He had a property, he and his wife, who's also a wonderful human being, Lolly, uh, they had some property up there where they lived in North Carolina. And uh, one of my friends that was closer to my age was actually staying at their property and invited me to be his roommate. And I thought, okay, well, this is great. Here's an opportunity to come out, live with Wilford and Lolly, and my friend uh, Chris Milam was his name, and really devote my time to my craft, to music. It was a big bonus that Wilford happened to have a recording studio on his property. Plus, I made a lot of new friends on the East Coast, so I let my, my mom know, sorry, Mom, 
when I come back home at the end of the summer, I'm going to be packing up my stuff and moving out to North Carolina, which was a long way from the Los Angeles area where we were living at the time. So that's what I did. I packed up my Ford Pinto, drove out there, and stood it three years in Black Mountain, which is outside of Asheville, North Carolina. I uh, had a lot of wonderful experiences there, especially with the Baha'i community out in that area, which is another very vibrant, creative group of very talented people. And during those three years, what did you do with your music? My plan was that I was going to go ahead and compose and record this album of music, and I was going to be sort of a one-man band and do it all myself so I'd have complete control of the the creative experience. And then I'd have that recording, I'd be able to take that and launch my career. And, you know, in the three years that I was there, I kept acquiring more equipment and making more attempts, and I had my music recorded, but I never got it to a point where I felt it was good enough. (laughs) Mm. So I never actually had a finished product. During that time, I had joined a couple of local bands, and I had worked with some other artists. I was actually working with a, a rap group from Asheville, and I... I did all their music arrangements for them. We actually went to New York and uh, were supposed to record a single, but that's that's a you know, story in and of itself. It was one of the roughest uh, couple days of my life. <laughs> just never, for whatever reason, just never felt I had a finished product and never felt that I had found where I needed to be. As much as I loved Western North Carolina, because I'd gone there without really a career plan, and the economy there is not conducive to really supporting oneself easily, I found myself just struggling for a couple of years, spending a lot more time just trying to make ends meet than, than making music, and ended up deciding, you know what, I'm going to go be close to my family again, where I have a support structure, and try to get my feet on the ground. And I ended up moving... <laughs> At the time, most of my family had migrated from Southern California to the Seattle area because of the real estate boom up there. They had all bought property up in Seattle. So, Oh, and my, at that point also, my mother had gone through various ups and downs, and she had decided she was going to take some of her savings and spend a couple years traveling. I think she was going to go to Tanzania and Kenya, if I'm remembering correctly, and maybe one other place. And she invited me to come with her. And I thought, okay, well, that sounds like a great experience. We can go and you know, I can maybe learn the music of other cultures and uh, be of service in, in another country. So that was part of the plan. I was going to go join her up in the Seattle area, and we'd, we'd take off and, and visit these other countries. I uh, got to Washington State. Her plans had changed. She decided not to go, but that was okay. I think at that point I was just happy to be with family again and start sort of a, a fresh start there in uh, the Pacific Northwest, where I lived there for three years. My brother, who I mentioned earlier, who had he's my half brother, my older half brother. I have some younger half brothers as well. Big blended family, but my older half brother, who'd grown up in El Salvador, had come up to uh, Evergreen which is a school in um, Olympia, Washington, 
So he was living up there, um, as well as several of my sisters were up there. My mother was up there. So my brother and I, who, even though we'd grown up on different continents, he had also grown up fascinated with music. Now, we never met until I was 13 and he was 15. So we both independently had gotten into music, uh, very much the same styles of music. Over the years, even though um, our teenage years were also spent separately, uh, we had corresponded with one another, but we'd never spent much time together, but we both kind of developed these musical abilities. So now here we were both in the same state, so we formed a band together. I paid. I, at this point, I had a, a steady job working for Nintendo in customer service, and I saved up some money, and I paid for us to go into the studio and professionally record an album. I flew out one of my friends from North Carolina to do percussion. We involved some other local musicians we had met, and we put together a very good album, if I may say so. It was, it was very high quality, sort of a Paul Simon-ish type of style, uh, but sort of eclectic as well. I tried with what little I knew about the music industry to cut a record deal here in the, in the U.S., but I couldn't get any interest, didn't really have any connections to pursue. But on a whim, in Santa Cruz, I had picked up a record by a group from Russia, and I had read a uh, People magazine they did a whole feature magazine on Russia and the Soviet Union. And I was fascinated by it. And for a couple of years, I thought, wouldn't it be neat to go to Russia? So when I was in Santa Cruz at a, at a record store, I was looking through their imports, I saw a Russian band's album that had been imported. The band's called Kino. And it looked like there was an address on there for their record company. So I just I bought that, thinking, well, maybe one day... I'll send my music to, uh, to a Russian record company. So after being rejected by a bunch of um, American music companies, I sent our demo album off to this Russian company, Melodia. It was actually the one and only record company because it was state-run. It was you know, There's no competition over there. There was only one record company. So I sent it off to them. Uh, this, the wall had come down at this point, but still things were pretty much under the Soviet system. Believe it or not, they responded. So we began a correspondence. I worked with some local people who spoke Russian, and I worked with a lawyer, and we actually worked out a contract that they would release the album. Actually, I had sent them just a demo tape, so we had the option of I would either fund the album project itself, or we could go there and record it on their dime. So we decided to do it here in the States. I funded it. So I was planning to take the band with me, but one by one they weren't able to, so I ended up going by myself and releasing the album over there on my own. And that was a whole other phase of my experience. By this time I'm about 23 or 24, something like that. So I ended up spending a summer there while they were working on printing up the uh, cassettes. This was back in 92, so uh, there were still cassette tapes. They needed some time to, to do that and develop the cover art and all that sort of thing. So I went off and joined a Baha'i project in Siberia for six weeks and came back to St. Petersburg, and the album still wasn't quite ready. 
I had a couple months to, to spend there, so I ended up studying some, some Russian on my own, actually with a tutor, I should say, and then ended up meeting a, a young Russian lady and falling in love, and uh, now we've been married since 94 and have two teen- teenage kids, so it was a whole other aspect of my <laughs> complex life. So what happened to the album? Well, okay, the album, it was finally ready, I think just like a day or two before I was scheduled to come back to the States. And I had to come back, so I was glad that they finally got it ready. So they gave me about 100 copies, which I brought back to the States, and um, uh, I sold them or gave away probably a good portion of them. (laughs) And they released it there, apparently, at least that's what they said they did, but... Uh, never went anywhere because what I didn't know was with the whole change of the Soviet system, now they had competition. And not only did they have competition, but they had piracy to deal with. So basically, they went from being the state-run record company to having these other companies that are mass-producing music from the West illegally and very cheaply. So you'd walk around in uh, you know, the big cities, or actually anywhere in Russia, and you'd be able to buy the latest Sting album, the latest Sade album, the latest Madonna album, and it was cost you maybe a buck. And it was, they were all pirated. And so here, you know, this company was having to deal with that, and they didn't really have a good plan. They, they didn't really know much about making a profit. <laughs> or competing in the, in the open marketplace, especially when there's piracy involved. So they were in the process of going bankrupt and really didn't have funds to promote my album, plus the fact that I was there on my own. I'm the bass player and composer. I couldn't really go out and perform the music on my own. So really there was little we could do to really promote the, the album. So it was financially a loss for me because I, I lost the money that I put into the project, but uh, it was still a great experience to be able to say I did it. I, I took all my years of musical training and created something that I felt very good about. And the, you know, the bonus was I had met my wife while I was there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, everything happens for a reason. So now here's a new chapter. You know, I've met this wonderful woman. Uh, full name is Yekaterina but I call her Katya. So we met, we fell in love, and I had only a couple weeks to get to know her because I was scheduled to come back to the States and uh, I wasn't able to reschedule. So I invited her, you know, why don't you come to the United States? And I, I needed to go back and make a little money, too, so that I could have something to live on. I was living off the savings from uh, having worked at Nintendo, but that, that was running out. So I, I invited her, why don't you come to the States? I need to do some work for a while, and you can get to know my family, and we can get to know each other. Interestingly, I, I was able to go to the embassy and, I, I'm sorry, the consulate in St. Petersburg, Russia, and asked them, okay, so what's the process here? And they said, well, are you going to marry this girl? And I said, uh, I don't know, maybe. And they said, okay, well, then you can uh, qualify for a fiancé visa for her. So... I came back to the States. We were actually having the uh, 
a high world congress in New York, and I was scheduled to come back and attend that and also perform there together with my brother and the uh, female singer from our band, uh, Aaliyah Conway, that's her name at the time. So I came back to New York, participated in that, which was a, just an amazing, wonderful event. So about a month later, Katya was able to come, and that was a great experience for her. She's never been to the West. I don't think she'd ever been out of Russia or the Ukraine. So she immediately fell in love with America. And a couple months later, when we got to know each other a little better, and interestingly, I spoke a bit of Russian, because I'd spent you know, the time there in Russia. When, when Katya and I met, she didn't speak any English. She knew maybe 10 words top. So uh, initially, we spoke mainly in Russian, but quickly she got better in English to the point where she surpassed me. So she spoke better in English than I did in, in Russian uh, before too long. But after a couple months, uh, we decided to get married in uh, April of 93. We got married and we decided to move back to Russia and the Ukraine. Her parents lived in, in the Ukraine. So we decided to go live in the town where her parents lived because she was very close to them and that way I could get to know them better and uh, I could continue my career path. As a, At that time I still was hopeful of starting my own music company and, and having success uh, in the music industry. And so we did that. We moved to the Ukraine. We lived there for nine months with her parents. It was interesting because uh, that wasn't the, the plan. Uh, that's not what I had bargained for. You know, I planned we would rent an apartment, but my, my wife was like, no, 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 we have, to, we have to live with them. I want to be right there. And so it was us, her parents, and then her grandmother, all in a two-bedroom apartment. And uh, they, they gave us one of the bedrooms, which was very thoughtful of them. They lived in the living room, and their grandmother was in the other bedroom. So we lived with them for about nine months. While we were living there, I was trying to promote my, my album and my music, and I ended up appearing on uh, the Ukrainian national news program and on a regional radio show. There was also a performance of my music at the local music college. It was a string quartet together who performed a piece I had composed and uh, arranged for them. We got to a point where we realized, you know, I wasn't going to be able to really make much of an income there in the Ukraine because the economy was, was really challenged. So either we needed to move to a major city and I would work for some Western firm, or we'd move back to the States. And we were starting to think about having a family at this point. So we thought, well, you know what? There's really a lot of crime in Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of pollution, unfortunately. So we decided, let's move back to the States. As much as we love living there in the Ukraine, we can start our life there for a while. So we did. We moved back to the States. And within a year of us having moved back, Katya's mother had passed away. She had had cancer. So the hardest part about that was that we were so far away. Basically, our, our daughter had been born during that time. In fact, she was about a month old when Katya's mother had passed away. As soon as we were able to, we, we brought Katya's father out. and He came and visited us and, and stayed with us. 
after that, we were able to bring her sister. My wife has one sister. So we brought her out at one point with her two children, who were just a little older than ours. By the time she came out, we, we had two children, a son and a daughter. So over the next several years, we'd try every summer to bring out either her father or her sister and, and her sister's kids. And we did that several times. Fortunately, it wasn't that expensive at the time. And it was easier for us to do that than for me to take time off work and us to travel there to Russia. We continued that trend until it got to a point where changes in the economy and our own expenses going on, we just couldn't afford to bring them over anymore. And we couldn't afford to go visit them either. So really, we haven't been back to Russia since 94. What were you doing at that time while you, when you were back in the States? Well, here we are in Southern California. We ended up here because when we came back to the States, all of my family that had been in Seattle had left. My mom moved down to Arizona. So we had Southern California or Arizona. And I felt uh, Arizona made better sense economically, because I knew that it was booming at the time. This was 94. The cost of living was lower than Southern California. So we settled on Arizona. So we came back in the spring. Summer came around. Here I am. I'm working for uh, $8 an hour. Again, not very good career planning, but basically I picked up a temp job. As things started to get hotter weather-wise, and it can get very hot in Phoenix, as I'm sure everybody knows, my wife, she had a part-time job as well, but most of the time she was cooped up in a tiny one-bedroom apartment where she didn't really know anybody. She was pregnant at the time. She was miserable. One of my sisters, who was living here in uh, Southern California, sent me an ad for a job with a cellular phone company that was doing very well. Found a job with them, so we moved out to Southern California. So here we are on one income. This is the fall of 94, maybe August of 94, making $10 an hour. Reality sets in that, wow, this is expensive to live out here in Southern California. So I worked really hard. I was promoted within a year, started to look at other options, and the company I worked for had a tuition reimbursement program. So I started a graduate program in business, thinking this time I'm going to I'm gonna pick a a degree choice that has better career opportunities. Over the next couple of years, I got my MBA and ended up working for a, a dot-com company. It was an e-commerce provider that I worked for for a few years until the dot-com bust. I moved on and worked for a recruiting firm that specialized in the procurement field uh, for about five years. And I was a VP there, so I was a, I was a big fish in a small pond. And at the same time, I also started teaching business courses online. Over the next five or six years, pursued more and more teaching opportunities to the part where I had so many part-time teaching gigs that uh, I was making more money doing that than I was at my full-time work as a vice president. So I ended up quitting my day job and staying home, uh, working from home and, and teaching online full-time, and that was a wonderful experience. It gave me a lot of time with my family and my kids. It uh, gave me a lot of time to write. I actually wrote a book during that period, not for the purpose of selling it, just because I was inspired to take some of my research that I had done on happiness 
uh, and compile quotes from all these different sources and put them together into a book, which I still have posted on a, a website that uh, people can download for, for free, and people enjoy reading it because it addresses really spirituality and happiness from the minds of many of the great thinkers of the world, the great scientists, uh, philosophers, and, and religious figures. Travis, what is the name of your book? It's called Are You Happy? That's a phrase that Abdu'l-Bahá, the, the eldest son of the founder of the high faith, he, he would ask people that question often, are you happy? So I made that the, the, the topic of, of the book. It really asks that question. And really, I mean, you could answer a yes or no, I'm happy at this particular moment, or I'm not happy, but it's really a continuum. Our goal in life, I think, is to make others happy and to make ourselves happy, not necessarily in the material sense, but more in the spiritual sense, to where we feel good about our beliefs, about our actions, you know, about our relationships. And that's really what happiness is about, in my understanding, from, from what I've been able to uh, come up with. What's the website that your book is, can be found on? HappySpirit.info, H-A-P-P-Y-S-P-I-R-I-T.info. But anybody who wants to is welcome to go to that website and click on the Start Here link. And then as soon as you click on that link, you'll be taken to a page where you can download the uh, book. It's a PDF file. You don't need to give me any information. All you do is click on the link and download the book, and then you can read it. You can share it with others. Welcome to, to do with it as you like. What was the motivation for writing the book? I ended up reading this wonderful book called The Edison Gene. And it's by uh, Tom Hartman, who's uh, an entrepreneur, an author, uh, a very, very talented person, a radio personality. I happened to read this book, and it was interesting when I came across it. I was at a library. I was doing some research on ADD or ADHD, as it's now known. This was one of the books in that section, and I started to look at it and just thumbing through it. Just every, everything my eye fell upon was just fascinating. I thought, I have to read this book. And I looked at the author, I thought, Tom Hartman, that's interesting. It can't be the same Tom Hartman that I listen to on the radio because how can you be an expert on politics and history and, and sociology and all the things that Tom Hartman on the radio is an expert in and also be an expert on ADHD and, and psychology and all the things that, you know, anthropology that are being discussed in this book. I thought, they must be different people. I started reading the book and in doing my research, I, I figured out it is the same person. He really talks about mankind's evolution, genetics and, and how they influence our lives. He talks about basically where the world is going. These were all you know, fascinating topics for me. I ended up reading uh, three other books of his. I was so inspired by his writing and how it helped me put some things together in my own life and with some of the other reading that I was doing. Plus, at that point, I was spending a lot of time um, in Baha'i study circles. We have a whole sequence of courses that we study, mostly things having to do with service and prayer and life after death and these uh, sort of religious and social topics. Uh, so I've been studying those as well, and I came to some revelations about myself. Probably the, the big thing was that I'd always felt that it was my responsibility to 
change the world. And, and when I had discovered music, that was how I was going to change the world through music. And I came to a revelation that I'm only responsible for my thoughts and my actions, not the outcome. So I've kind of been disappointed that I had, hadn't been able to find some way through the corrupt music industry to change the world. I hadn't been able to do that, and, and so I stopped beating myself up about that and said, well, you know what, maybe I wasn't supposed to. So I became somewhat more humble as far as my understanding of my place in the world, and I no longer felt I needed to change the world, but I just needed to do as much as I could to serve and be of service to the world, whatever that meant, without paying attention to the outcome, only paying attention to my, my intent trying to do the best that I could, that involved serving my family, you know, serving my friends. So here I am, I had come to these kind of personal revelations through the reading and the study that I had done and interaction with other Baha'is and other wise people that I know. And I felt, you know what, I'm, I'm so excited and moved. I just have to share this, you know. And so, so I did, I continued my research. I, I, it was a wonderful experience over about six months. I, I just went to libraries. I searched online and I found all this, all this writing about happiness and these other aspects of happiness. I, you know, I wrote about your physical happiness, mental happiness, spiritual happiness, and then social happiness and health in all these four different areas. So I, I did my study. I did my research. I pulled it all together and I also did quite a bit of research on physics, especially quantum physics, and how really everything is energy in a different form, and and how these spiritual things that I'd grown up believing, like about the power of prayer, I believed in prayer, but I didn't know how it worked. Of course, I still don't know how it works, but I always thought, okay, if, if I'm this person with these brain cells, and here's another person with different brain cells, and they're on the other side of the Earth, there's no way that my prayer could impact them other than through some spiritual unknown force. But what I came to understand is through quantum physics, there may be a way even through a physical force that a thought in my brain could somehow impact a thought in somebody else's brain on the other side of the Earth. I mean, there's no proof of that, but scientists have done these, these crazy experiments with quantum physics, things like string theory that just suggest that everything is connected, that the whole universe is a sea of energy, things started to make sense to me, that the spirituality that I'd always believed in, even though I believe it transcends our physical form, all of a sudden I had an explanation of how something like prayer could impact somebody on the other side of the world. And to me, this was just fascinating. It just All the puzzle pieces all fit together all of a sudden. And I just felt compelled to share it with others. I'd sort of hoped to really do more with the book. I'd say the people who did read it thanked me so much for it and shared it with others and really did value it. But at the same time, not everybody wants to take the time to sit down and read a book. So I found that I've been able to share this excitement that I have I've been able to share that with others more on one, one-to-one basis in small study groups and group meetings. 
uh, I can sort of boil down that whole, it's about a 70-page book, to whatever it is that that person is looking for at that time. Because it could be that the one thing that's going to really excite somebody might be on page 69 of the book or might be on page 10, and they happen to not be paying attention when they read that. So I've, I've made the book available to my students. I let them know. And I introduce myself to my students that uh, I've written this book. They're welcome to download it. And the ones that do usually very thankful that, that they've had a chance to read it because there's so much in there. And again, I've, I only wrote about maybe half the book at the most. The rest of it's all quotes I've compiled from different sources. So all I really did is tie them together. So there's really not a unique idea of my own in there. You know, I, I did the work of pulling everything together and, and presenting it. Technically, what I should ultimately do is really contact each of the authors who I've quoted and request their permission to be able to distribute the book. But until I have the time to do that, the only way to get it is to really download it from my website. But maybe at some point in the future I'll make a version of the book that I can promote more, have some kind of strategy to get it out there and share with the world. But for now, it's, it's available just to the listeners of your program and Anybody else who happens across my website or, or who happens to uh, uh, have come into contact with me. You know, what the, what the book really boils down to is that there's material happiness and there's spiritual happiness. This actually is something that was stated by Abdu'l-Baha, who I referenced earlier. And he said the material happiness is temporary, but spiritual happiness is eternal. He explains that material happiness comes with change. You know, things change in our lives. We can have a good day, we can have a bad day. And on those good days, we feel happy. But when he talks about spiritual happiness, he's talking about something else. Of course, I cannot really interpret, but I could only assume what he means based on my, my reading of, of his writings and, and the other research I did. But spiritual happiness is not a feeling, but it's more a state. And that the more that we turn our hearts towards the divine creator, and instead of focusing on our own will, our own desires and, and needs, the more we focus on others, on serving God through serving humanity and serving his creation, the more we experience that spiritual happiness. So that's really, now, see, now I've given away <laughs> the, the, the central theme of the book, but that's really, I believe, the message. That, uh, that's what it's really about. Uh, it's not about feeling happy. It's about loving others. It's about knowing God and serving God by serving His creation. Well, Travis, thank you so much for sharing your story and, and sharing your work. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Travis Williams, a Baha'i who early in life aspired to be a musician and later in life compiled a book about happiness, which you can download free from his website, happyspirit.info. For the balance of the hour, I'll be playing music from Travis's album that he produced in Russia. For a copy of this interview and others, please go to my website, www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website, www.baha'i.org, 
or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Cold, the streets are cold, the streets are lonely.
on playing around So you keep on playing like there's nothing to lose Doesn't love mean you hate to fight Doesn't love mean you unveil your feelings Doesn't love mean you give your life Doesn't love mean you get back something You say love me well That could be true but I This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.